Sermon. Matt and I are actually going to tag team this sermon. I'll have the first kind of two thirds. He'll have the last third, and I give you the exact proportions because if he goes long, we, we agree ahead of time. But it's possible that I go short. You know, there's there's a, there's a million possibilities this morning. But I'm excited about this opportunity to dive into God's Word together. It is a unique opportunity. We're kind of hopping into a new sermon series mostly starting next week, and so we, I really just wanted to take this Sunday um, to kind of look back at what God has done over the past year and look forward to what God might be doing in our church moving forward. I wanted to take an opportunity to cast vision about what I believe and what I see God doing in our church moving forward. And at the same time, I recognize that there are many of you in the seats out there that are not have not been a part of either of our churches in the past. Um, and so it's unique for you because you're going to be hearing the story of what God did to, to kind of bring our churches together. But I think it's important context as we get excited about what God might do through our churches moving forward. I know there's people who are new in the room because we've been looking at the, the numbers and our average attendance on Sundays as a new church is larger than if you took both of our church's best Sundays and put them together. And so I know there are new people here. We're excited that you're here. Um, and, and finally, at the same time, I realize that some of you in this room are going through so much right now, so much difficulty, so much pain, so much confusion, that even if you want it to, you don't have the emotional or spiritual bandwidth to care about what we're doing as an organization. You're just trying to keep your head above the water. And so I didn't want to give this amazing, visionary, long-term future of our organization sermon without it having some practical ramifications. And so I'm going to kind of share big picture visionary casting for our organization. Um, and then Matt's going to come up and take some of those same principles and share them for those of you that are like, hey, Ryan, that's all great, wonderful, love to hear it for you all, but like, I need some rebuilding in my own life. Like, we're going to talk about what it's going to look like for us to rebuild as a new church together, but I, I need to, to work on myself. I, I need God to show up and do some great things in my life before I can ever think about the organization that uh, we're a part of. And so that's kind of the direction for this morning, that we'd have a visionary message for our church as a whole, but then that outline would kind of transcend not just what our church is, but us as individuals. Does that make sense? Jack and with me? That's the direction we're headed, whether or not you say yes or no. So, I know that's the repeated joke. If I don't have anything funny to say, I'll just say that every Sunday. So let me pray, and then we'll hop in. Father, I thank you um, for all that you have done this past year in our church, in both of our churches. God, the, the announcement with Mike is, is just one microchasm of you um, taking humility and faithfulness of your people and allowing them to be used far beyond anything they could ever ask, think, or imagine. Because you are a God that takes humble sacrifices and multiplies them. You're a God that takes a few loaves and a couple of fish and feeds 5,000. And so, God, we come to you today with a few loaves and a couple of fish in a city around us that's starving. God, and we ask that you would take our minuscule sacrifice, the little bit of skills and talents and abilities and obedience that we have to offer, and that you would multiply it. 
that we would be a, a church, a kingdom outpost in our city with long-term effectiveness, that we would introduce more people to Jesus for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last month, I sat down to write what is called a pastor's report. And a pastor's report is something that uh, Matt and I do every month to our board. Just kind of a one-page sheet of what God's doing, what, we're, what we've been involved in throughout the month. A little bit of accountability, a little bit of kind of shepherding and vision casting. And when I sat down to think about what I should write, I was thinking about where God had brought us as a church in the past and, and where I believed we were going to go in the future as a church. And, and God just kept drawing my mind back to one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and it's the book of Nehemiah. Um, and in Nehemiah, I, I saw these patterns of, of God using Nehemiah and the Israelite people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I saw this pattern that I think really kind of is, is replicated in a lot of different organizations and individuals' lives when they think about rebuilding. Like, like Nehemiah has these principles for, for rebuilding that I think we can use as an organization as we seek to rebuild, and we as individuals, we can take those same principles and use them as we think about rebuilding. These are principles. It's important that we realize these are principles and not promises. Because what happens oftentimes is when we flip to books of the Bible in the Old Testament or the Proverbs, wisdom, literature, oftentimes we read them as if they're promises written specifically to us, when in reality they're history or principles that were written broadly. And, and we try and apply them like they're promises to us. And so what I, what I don't want you to hear is that if we apply these principles, that, that we're, our success is going to be perfect. It's, it's promised by God. These are just wise principles that I believe if we will put to practice as a church, and if you will put them to practice in your individual lives, that God might do some things through that. Does that make sense? All right, so before we hop into the principles, let me give you a quick Cliff Notes version of Nehemiah. This is super condensed Cliff Notes version because we don't have a lot of time. Um, Nehemiah is one of God's chosen people at a time when God's people were far from their calling as a nation. They had been drawn out of the nation and put into captivity for hundreds of years, and they were about as far away from success as they could possibly be. And yet, in that time, God began to move in light of some of the prophecies that he had made through his prophets. He said that the nation of Israel was going to be restored, and God began to do some miraculous things through some secular kings. Secular kings were saying, you go back to your nation. Here, take money, take resources, and you go back and you honor the things that your God has called you to do. God began to do miraculous things. But he used individuals throughout that story to, to come alongside and to be obedient to those things. And so, again, that's in that context, it's important to realize that anytime you're doing anything for God, there's this, there's this tension where God's pretty much just doing it miraculously. He's showing up. He's, he's moving in and through all of these opportunities. And yet he calls us to come alongside him, to partner with him in what he's doing. And that's what we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. These people, God's people, come alongside what God is doing. And they begin to reestablish the community of Israel. They begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they begin to rebuild the walls 
around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is an individual who feels called to participate in this process. And ultimately, he's going to become one of the key leaders that organizes the rebuilding of the wall. And it's with that context that we see these four principles lived out through Nehemiah. Principle number one for faithful rebuilding, if we're going to be about rebuilding God's plan for our life, His plan for our church faithfully, I would say this. It's number one is agree with God. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Nehemiah hears that the, the things are not going well for Jerusalem, and his heart is broken over it. And he says this. He prays to God in verse 8. He says, please remember what you told your servants Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place that I have chosen for my name to be honored. So Nehemiah hears that things aren't going the way that they should be going for the nation of Israel. And he prays to God. He says, God, remember, remember what you said here servant Moses, you said that we would be scattered if we disobeyed, but if we returned to you, you would be faithful no matter how far, no matter how much we messed up, no matter how far we've gone, you would bring us back to yourself. Nehemiah has this burden, this prayer of repentance where he agrees with the promises of God, with the things of God. He confesses his own sin, the way that he has participated in the rebellion that led them into captivity. I think this principle um, is, is clearly art, art, articulated through our, the leadership of our churches. Both of our churches kind of found ourselves in situations where we had to be internally focused. Like we know the, 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 the mission of the church in the New Testament is the Great Commission. We are to go out and to make disciples of all nations. We are to be externally focused. And we both found ourselves in circumstances where we had to be internally focused. And, and our leadership said, this is necessary, but we can't stay here. We can't get comfortable in a place where we're internally focused. How can we, how can we look for ways to agree with God and find ways for God to do some miraculous things through us? And I think it's in that process we begin to pray and God began to move and introduce people to other people. And we began to say, what if, what if we might be better together as a church than separate? And so God, because of our agreement with him and saying we need to be externally focused, right now we're internally focused and it's not okay to stay there. We need to be externally focused. We, we begin to agree with God. May we as individuals, may we never lose sight of God's purposes for his church. May we never become comfortable just going to church or doing the things that we've always done. This is how churches die. When we get comfortable, when we just check boxes and go through patterns and do the things that we've always done, may we be externally focused. May we agree with the things of God, even when it calls us to obedience into things that are uncomfortable, to things that are difficult, to things that are challenging for us. May we be willing to be courageous. I love what um, Miles from the denomination who came and was interviewing Matt and I about um, the merger, and he said, thanks for being courageous. There's a ton of churches that would have opportunities like this that I know of that 
man, it would just be too hard. It would be too difficult for them to even step out and do something this wild. And you guys were, were courageous. We as a church, we've been courageous to agree with God. And not only to agree with God, but to, to do the next thing, to take the first step. See, this is, Nehemiah doesn't just agree with God. He doesn't just confess, repent, pray, and say, God, I want you to, to do the thing you said you were going to do. Nehemiah says, I'm going to participate in that process. So not only does he repent and, and pray and say, God, I want you to do something miraculous, but he takes the first step. In Nehemiah chapter 2, after his prayer of confession, verse 1, it says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. Sounds like a cool job. Um, I think, unless somebody doesn't like the king, then all of a sudden it's the worst job on the planet. But um, he said, I had never before appeared sad in the king's presence. And so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. The king was very concerned if Nehemiah was sick or not, because Nehemiah had the first sip of wine. So if he was sick, somebody was trying to kill him. He was like, I don't think you're sick. I think you're sad. Um, and Nehemiah became terrified, and he replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king asked, Well, how can I help you? Listen to Nehemiah. He says, With a prayer to the God of heaven. He knew that this was going to be a difficult thing for him to do. He's stepping out in faith with a prayer to the God of heaven. I replied, if it pleases the king, if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king and the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone and when will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. So Nehemiah's first principle, he agrees with God, he confesses, he believes what God wants to do in the people of Israel, but then he takes the first step of action. See, agreeing with God is only step one, and this is often the only step that many of us ever take. We agree with God, we confess and repent, and then we do nothing about it. We get complacent because godly obedience is far more difficult than godly agreement. I wonder if some of the most fruitful ministries that God's ever called us to plant or to start died between agreeing and taking the first step of action. I wonder how many times God's called us as an organization or as an individual into obedience and we agreed with it. We knew that he wanted to do something in and through us, that he wanted to use our just our, our loaves and our fish, this little sacrifice that we have. And then we agreed with him and then we got comfortable and didn't do anything about it. Uh, Mercy's parents were here over Christmas and we were reflecting on stories of their childhood as we're about to have our first. We're trying to imagine what our child might be like based on me as a kid and her as a kid. Yeah, good luck. Really, really good luck. Um, and her mom said, you know, Marissa was, she, she would say no all day long, rebellious, but then she would actually do it. She said the middle child, Christina, classic middle child, she would yes me to death, but then never actually do it. And so she had the appearance of being this like awesome child, right? She was always, yes, mom, yes, mom, yes, mom. But if you actually paid attention to her follow-through, she didn't do anything about it. How often are we as Christians like that? Yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. But then when it takes the time to actually step out and take action, how often are we that person that just yeses God to death but doesn't do anything about it? 
step one is to agree with God. Step two is to take action. I believe our churches merging as a result of the first two steps in this process. Both of our churches, we were discontent with being inward focused, and our leadership led us to take difficult steps. And we've taken more than one. We've taken a few really difficult steps. And it's because of your humility and your faithfulness and your willingness to listen to God and step out and take action, even if you weren't 100% sure if it was going to lead to the things that you wanted it to lead to. And we've seen God move in these principles of rebuilding. We've agreed with God. We've taken steps of action. And it's led to a fruitful new church beginning. May we continue to be a church full of individuals who aren't willing to just be comfortable to just agree with God, but, but that we take action courageously when we're sensing God leading us. This is an excellent foundation for a church to be built on, individuals. May we pray like it depends on God, and may we act like it depends on us. Not just agree with God, but to take steps of action. The third principle is to make good plans. Nehemiah doesn't just take action, but he thinks about it. He's thoughtful. He has he has a plan for what it's going to look like for him to be successful in this ministry that God's calling him to. In verse 7, I told the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories, territories on my way to Judah. Then please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. So not only is he asking the king to let him have an extended period of time off, but he's saying, also, give me all of the materials that I'm going to need to make this happen. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple, for the fortress, for the city walls, for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. These are the first two principles, agreeing with God and taking the the, the first step that we've been as a church, and now where we're headed is this is the time where we need to make good plans. We're treating this, I'm treating this kind of like a hybrid of a church plant. Because the reality is, if you look around, we have a, a building, a room full of people, technology to live stream. Like, we kind of look like a semi-grown-up church. Um, but if you spend any time with us at all, you'll realize that there's a lot of things that aren't done yet. There's a lot of things that need to be built. There's a lot of ministry strategies and philosophies that, that need to be put together. And so we really are rebuilding. We've seen God move. We've seen success. But now it's time for us to make plans, to strategize. How can we best steward the resources that God has given us? And I think as we enter into this phase, these making good plans, we can, we can expect a few things. Some things that Nehemiah saw as he made good plans and took actions of obedience. He saw both momentum and opposition. Nehemiah began to see God do miraculous things. The wall was coming together far faster than they could ever have imagined. And yet in the momentum, in things going right, in things happening because God was faithful to the nation of Israel, opposition arose, both from inside and outside the church. And a large chunk of the rest of Nehemiah is him adjusting his plans according to the success that they're having and according to the opposition that's coming from both inside and outside. I think it's important that we, as a church, we make good plans, but we're flexible. We're willing to respond to what God is doing in our organization. So I put together, uh, Matt and I actually worked really hard on this calendar 
this planning calendar. Um, and what it is is it's us kind of explaining when we're going to put organizational muscle behind certain things. If we're a hybrid church plant, we need to develop certain strategies, certain ministry philosophies. Um, some of you don't care about any of these languages, but some of you do. So if you care, pay attention. If you don't, take five minutes off and get ready for Matt to tell you how you can change your life tomorrow. It'll be great. Um, so these are, this is the times in which we're going to kind of, as an organization, put our muscle behind certain things. And you cannot see that very well at all, but that's okay. I'll explain it to you. Um, this does not mean that we're only going to do these things and we're not going to do anything else. This just means this is when we, as an organization, are going to work to build strategies and structures around these things. First and foremost, we're going to start a small groups ministry at the end of the month of January and into February. We want to do this because we believe the church is not just a place that we come to, but it is a group of people that we're connected with. And we have to be connected in relationship before we can ever go out and serve our community. So we're going to build relationships with one another in living rooms and classrooms and bars and Panera Breads and all kinds of places. We're going to meet. We're going to get together. We're going to build relationships that allow us to be obedient to what God's calling us to. After that, we're going to work on our mission and our vision and our practices. We're going to have common language around what we're doing. The thing, the thing that we did in the merge process is we figured out that there was a lot of commonality between Canvas Church and Grace Community Church. But then, just like when people who are dating and get engaged have a lot of things in common when they move into each other's house, they realized that the things that they thought they had in common weren't as in common as they really thought they were. And so it's important for us. We, we, we are similar as organizations, but it's important for us to, to kind of create our new pathway forward as one new organization. That we have common language. And so we'll do that in March and April. We'll figure out how to become members, and we'll be able to hold one another accountable to the things that God's doing. And next, we'll tackle discipleship because it's important that the people that God is bringing to our church, that they know what it means to be obedient to Jesus, that, they, that they're equipped to do the work of the ministry. Um, welcome and assimilation. These are internal language terms that you might not know, but we just want people who come here for the first time to feel welcome. We want them to know how they can be a part of our church. Whether they're a follower of Jesus yet or not, we want to make sure that they feel welcome and can assimilate. And then finally, outreach. We want to... We want to have all of our systems in place so that when we reach out to our community, this doesn't mean we're not going to do any outreach until September. This is organizational weight. So we're in a season of making good plans. These plans may change, but we believe this is the best strategy for us to transition from a new church to an established organization with systems and structures that will help us best reach and disciple our community. As we've seen the first thing that Nehemiah saw. We've seen momentum. We've seen attendance grow, new people getting connected, baptisms and outreach opportunities like housing the homeless that we never would have been able to do on our own. So I ask you for patience and flexibility. I ask that you pray for our church and our community and communicate openly and honestly. And here's a, here's a disclaimer that I don't know if you know, but Nehemiah, not Jesus. So we often read the we often read the Old Testament. We read these heroes of our faith, and we like whitewash all of their failures. Nehemiah messed up a bunch. Like he did a lot of bad things. He prayed some prayers where you're like, "Are you sure you know God?" Um, 
And so I, I share that with you because here's the reality. I'm not God. I don't know if you guys have figured that out yet or not. Amen. Our leadership is going to fail. We are going to make mistakes. We are just individuals who are following a call to God. Do not put godly leaders on a pedestal. Nehemiah failed throughout this process, and so will I, and so will Michelle, and so will Donovan, and so will Matt, and so will our leadership team. Don't put your hope in our leadership. Don't put your hope in our ministry philosophies and our strategies and the things that we develop. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Agree with him. Take steps of obedience towards him. Make good plans that you think he's going to use to grow his kingdom. And be flexible with those plans because sometimes we do things that we think God's calling us to do and it's really just what we want to do. So let's be flexible, obedient. Let's listen to God and what he's doing as we make our plans. And finally, the fourth principle is handle success with humility. See, Nehemiah and the Israelites, they saw God do some incredible things. This, this wall was actually built in 52 days. It's very clear in the way that the book was written that this was a miraculous thing. There's no way any group of people could have rebuilt this wall in 52 days, but God showed up and did the impossible. And not long after seeing God do the impossible, did yet again the Israelite people start to disobey? Did yet again do they start to rebuild? Nehemiah in chapter 13, I don't have time to share it with you. You can go read it yourself. Nehemiah comes back. He, he goes to the king for a while, and he comes back to check on all the things that are happening in, in Israel. And he's walking around the walls, and they're just disobedience after disobedience after rebellion after disobedience. And he's like, we just saw God show up. We just saw God do the miraculous. How often is this true of our lives? How rebellious are we as a people? We agree with God. We take steps in action. We make good plans. God shows up and does some incredible things in our lives. And then we forget the source of the success. We forget that it was always God's hand in it that made us successful to begin with. How easily we let go of the abundant life that God is providing for us in order to submit to a lie that the enemy has for us. I think we clearly see this pattern throughout the Scripture, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, throughout the history of the church, and throughout our individual lives. We agree with God. We take action. We make good plans. We see victory and freedom that comes from obeying God, and then we forget the source of the success. Church, we've seen God do some incredible things in our church in just a few months. And I believe He wants to set us up as a long-term kingdom outpost in this city. However, all of that can go away if we lose sight of the one who's gotten us here in the first place. All of that can go away if we get prideful and arrogant about the things that we're doing. All of that can go away if we forget that the church isn't just our walls, but that there are churches all over the city that are doing obedient things for God, that are seeing the kingdom of God work. May we be partners with them. May we not, may we not just think that we're awesome. May we realize that God is the one that's working in and through all of the churches of our city. May we be obedient to the thing that he's calling us to. May we be a church full of humble individuals who know why we're here and how we got here to begin with. May we realize that God's work in our city is so much bigger than just our local church. 
May we have an attitude of humility no matter how God chooses to use us. I'm going to pray for our church, and Matt's going to come up and share some practical applications for us as individuals. Father, may we be a church that doesn't just agree with you, but that takes steps of obedience. And God, as we take steps of obedience, may you produce what only you can produce, which is fruit. And may we handle that fruit with humility for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Later at the end, Jesus first. Christocentric. It's about Jesus. Humility. We need to be humbled. And then participation with the rest of the body of Christ beyond these walls in Winchester and I hope throughout the earth. Um, so I want to, excellent job, well done. Um, but I think Ryan's right that some of us may be at a place where we're like, I love it, but man, I'm not sure I'm going to make tomorrow. Um, I'm distant from God. I sense this distance. So I'd like to back up to two verses in Nehemiah before the verses that Ryan read about agreeing with God. We do need to agree with God. But the place to begin in agreeing with God is not just seeing who He is, but recognizing who we're not. Verse 6. Nehemiah, well, chapter 1, verse 6. But Nehemiah hears what's going on. He resonates with it. He understands it. And he says to God in prayer, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And then he goes into remember the instructions. So I'd like to walk us through that process. Because I don't know of anything... Uh, let me say it this way. There is abundant forgiveness for sin. Abundant forgiveness for sin. I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where there's any forgiveness for excuse. We take truth to God, and God in His abundant grace and mercy transforms us. I'm going to read a quote from Judith Hogan. She's a creative writing professor and spiritual formation teacher. She writes this, The first and foundational kingdom value that Jesus imparted is it the people who own the kingdom, the people to whom the gifts come and through whom its powers arise, are not the shining people of faith who appear flawless and without need. No, the kingdom is owned by, and the power comes to those who know they don't measure up, to those who are willing to embrace weakness, to people who intimately understand their begging dependence upon a merciful Savior. I'd like to do this with just a quick children's story. Some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis. He wrote a, a series of children's books, Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of them, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he tells a story about Eustace. Um, Nehemiah got it right. He heard it, recognized it, and he repented. Many of us 
uh, don't get it quite that right. And Eustace, in this allegory that C.S. Lewis writes as a children's story, is kind of the depiction of, uh, of common humanity. Eustace is this stubborn boy. He is a self-impressed young man. He is a, an angry person. He creates problems in, in his environment, in his context. And if we walk through the account of Eustace going over to the dragon's lyre, falling in love with the dragon's lyre, putting on the bracelets from the dragon's lyre, falling asleep on the treasure, dreaming dreams of a dragon, he then wakes up as a dragon. At first, he likes it. He's strong. He's powerful. He, he, people fear him. People respect him. They do what he says, and, and he loves it. But he quickly realizes that it also brings a lot of loneliness. You know, most of us, when we come to God with our own dysfunctional behavior, whatever it is, we come to God with the besetting sin. I'm not talking about just a sin that, that occurs every now and then, but, but one of those besetting things, the thing that, that you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of. And yet it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. For many of us, we begin in this process like Eustace, where we resist wanting to even admit or deal with our own dysfunction. We come up with excuses. Uh, you ever hear the statement, Methinks thou dost protest a bit too much? No, we recognize it, but we won't acknowledge it. We see it, the power of the human mind to deceive itself is it's unfathomable. There's a lot. And the truth is that much of our sinful behavior, our dysfunctional behavior, are, is learned as a coping mechanism to a broken environment. And, and maybe as a child or as a young adult, uh, it works. Unfortunately, the screaming kid <clears throat> that gets the attention of his mother and the loving, nurturing, nurturing hands of his mother and learns that when you don't feel loved or cared for, you scream, it works when you're one. It doesn't work when you're 31. And yet we adopt these behaviors, these activities, these, these besetting sins in our own life. And we do it because it worked. It's no longer working anymore, but we're hopeful. And we're resistant. Eustace was resistant. But eventually he came to this place of recognition. He admitted his own dysfunction, but really had no clue how to get out of it. He was a dragon, didn't want to be a dragon, believed there was a better way, but he had no idea what that looked like. And then he went to step three, kind of stage three, and it's the, the failure of self-help. He decides that he has to peel the dragon's skin off of his body, and so he cuts and he peels the skin off, and what does he find underneath? More dragon skin. And so he cuts and he peels off and what does he find? More dragon skin. It's the, it's the, the, the fallacy of self-healing. Of thinking somehow that if I just act right, get it right, think right, go to the right church, uh, read the right, the right version of the Bible, do the right thing, somehow I can, I can earn my way, I can, I can continue to peel back all of this skin and, and eventually I'll be fine. And it's a fallacy, folks. C.S. Lewis does this wonderful place where finally the lion looks at him and says, you will have to let me undress you. It's the wounding that heals. 
The lion is the Christ figure in this allegory. And the Christ figure, Aslan, says, I must undress you. And then in Eustace's voice, you hear, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right through my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. I long for fruit that remains. I long for skin that's not encrusted in dragon. Let me give you um, six R's of repentance. We'll go through these really quickly. If you have a bulletin, they're in your bulletin. And I'm going to actually ask you mentally, as I, as I speak through them, to do them in your heart. Um, but I'm also going to give you some homework. Someone said to me before service, I said something about, you know, sending you forth with the bulletin insert and you can, you can do this. And, and they said, oh, homework. I said, well, no, you can ignore that if you just want to come to church and don't be transformed. You know, you know, in church there's a lot of hearing. And hearing is good. But to learn something, you don't just hear, you've got to see. And the reality is most true transformation, most true incorporation of anything is not just hearing, seeing, but it's in the actual doing. It's the actual doing. And in fact, James says that, that um, confess your faults, sins, dysfunctional behavior, Confess it to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I mean, you go to God for forgiveness. But if you, but if you want the skin peeled off, somehow in this process of confessing to one another, the Spirit of God shows up and there's this one another that, that, that happens. Okay, let me give them to you really quick. Number one, recognition. It's what Nehemiah did really well. He recognized his own sin, the sins of the people. He owned them and he confessed them. By the way, I encourage you, when you confess, name the sin. Be specific. You know, not just the, oh, Lord, for all that I've done and don't even realize. No, 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 Lord, for this. In fact, I'd encourage you right now, is there something that God's tugging on your heart? That besetting sin? The anger that just keeps coming out and wounding people around you? The self-soothing? Through alcohol, through food, through work, ready for this one, through spirituality. I've seen people take religion and use it as self-soothing rather than as a, a means of grace to go to God. Recognize. That's the beginning step. Number two, repent. Now, repent means, just means turn away. But here again, like the, the recognizing the sin to repent, specifically what are you turning from and to? What does it look like? When, when Ryan put the slide up of mission, vision, and then we put practices, I am so tired of sitting with people who have core values who don't have any idea how to put them into practice. Talk about core practices. So here again, recognize and then repent. What, am, what specifically am I turning from? I found that, that um, well, start concrete, simple. 
Number three, renounce. Renounce any demonic stronghold that's taken place in your life. You know, Satan's two favorite lies are, one, that there is a demon under every tree and rock and chair. That, that it's all demonic. And his other favorite lie is that there's nothing demonic. It, it, there's nothing to do with that. And they're both lies. And so, I, I promise you that if you have a besetting sin, there is a demonic activity trying to keep you in that sin. And that you have power, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have power to renounce it. And so it's a step of repentance. It's one of the R's. Renounce. Satan, you have no place here. You've been defeated. Speak truth. Um, truth always wins over his lies. So renounce. Number four, and here's the big one, folks. Receive. Don't just turn and, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Receive. We're going to take communion in a little bit. And communion, you know, I actually just said it. We don't take communion. We receive communion. We receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through his broken body and his shed blood. We receive his transformational work. The, the acts that we do position us for his powerful transformation in our lives. In Nehemiah, it was the external, which demonic we can take in our context, or the internal, which is our own inability to receive, our own inability to forgive. But receive forgiveness that is promised in Christ. And number five, and here's a big one, and it's really kind of Ryan's walk out for the group, for the people of God, you know, the planning and all that kind of stuff. I would say for ourselves, too, that, that, that to get repentance that sticks, that works, that stays, the fifth R is realign. Realign your life. If I'm turning from that, what does this look like? If I'm not doing that, what, what, what am I doing instead? How am I behaving instead? How am I focusing instead? What am I thinking instead? Some of you might be familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the five stages of dying. And I know that was back in the 60s, and we've learned a lot. It's not a, a, a linear progression. And, but this whole sense of denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. You know that those same steps your soul does to you on a regular basis. If, if, if anyone here ever meet a boundary crasher? No boundary crasher? You know, there's a rule of five with boundary crashers. That a boundary crasher will try five different ways to crash the boundary that you have set. And unless you get past those five ways that they try to get to, to crash the boundary that you have set, uh, they won't believe the boundary actually exists. So you have to hold that boundary. Uh, Nehemiah did it. Uh, Nehemiah, when he was trying to establish the Sabbath again, Nehemiah first, the, they were coming into Jerusalem and selling stuff on the Sabbath and they weren't supposed to. And so first he rebuked the sellers. Next, he confronted the leaders. Then he locked the gates. Then he set guards at the locked gates. And then there were still people who broke the boundary, came and showed up. And to those, he rebuked the sellers and confronted them. He threatened them. So too with our soul. Our soul, when we realign, it's going to try five different ways. We hold on to the grace of God, the goodness of God the power of God. 
to get through. And then last of all, we rejoice. The band is going to lead us in a time of rejoicing as we're doing communion, as we're receiving communion. Um, I, I think communion should be this incredible time of rejoicing. Have you recognized the sin? Have you turned from it? Have you renounced any demonic input? You know, God can hear you talking to Him while I'm speaking to you. Isn't that kind of cool? Have you renounced any demonic strongholds? Do you receive His grace and forgiveness? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to help you realign your life in a way that holds the strongholds of God rather than the strongholds of sin? If you've done that, then I'm going to invite you to rejoice in the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord and Savior. And by the way, your homework, do this with a trusted friend. Find a trusted friend and just out loud ask if they will hear your repentant confession that you might be healed. Don't, don't do it with anyone. A trusted brother or sister. A trusted Christian friend. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, betrayed he did take bread and he broke it and he gave it new meaning. And he took a cup and he gave it new meaning. We're going to accept that new, that new meaning in our own life as we receive grace from his hand in these symbols of bread and these symbols of juice, of wine. In this case, it's juice. I'm going to ask this group, who, those who want to come, if you can come forward in this row and go back that row. You guys, if you can come forward, or go backwards in this row, back to that back table, and then back down in that. If you guys can come, go backwards, take, and then come back down this, and then if you guys can come forward here, and that, that hopefully will, last time I didn't give you, Brian gave you directions like four weeks ago, and it worked beautifully, and I said, you know, just go do it, and it didn't work beautifully, so I'm happy to learn. Father, hear our confession. Lead us in realigning our life as we renounce the evil one and any activity that he wants to do. We repent and we receive your gift with great joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come and partake as you are ready.